Publishing for Profit podcast is brought to you by Ghostwriters and Co. Earn more money by publishing better content and learn how to increase your thought leadership so you can build your brand. Head over to ghostwritersandco.com for more information. That's ghostwritersandco.com. And now, your host, Joel Mark Harris. Hello, and welcome to the Publishing for Profit podcast. This is your host, Joel Mark Harris. Today, we have a very special guest, Jason Brick, who is a freelance writer, author, and ghostwriter. He has published over 20 books as a ghostwriter. He has over 3,000 articles, um, numerous books under his own name. He is also a six-degree black belt, which is pretty cool, and we talk a little bit about that and his love for traveling. So hopefully you enjoy this episode. Hello, Jason. How's it going today? Fantastic, Joel. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. So we've got Jason Brick, freelance writer who has a very interesting portfolio. Um, He is also a six-degree black belt, which I think is super cool. Um, And I'd like to kind of start with your martial arts. How uh, does that translate? What have you learned through um, your martial arts uh, and how does that translate to your writing? Oh man, there's so many, so many things that influence me about the martial arts. As you can imagine, it's been a part of my life for a very long time. And I can put forward some of the things that popular culture thinks about with martial arts, about discipline, about focus, things like that, about having other options for dealing with an editor I don't like. Uh, (laughs) But really, the most important Mm -hmm. thing is that I've been doing this for 30 years as a martial artist. And the belief it's given me in the power of small incremental steps for, towards a defined goal. You don't become a black belt overnight. You don't become a six-degree black belt overnight. You don't, the thing you're doing when you sit down to practice or you sit down to teach a class or you attend a seminar or you go compete, the dif- distance between that and a six-degree black belt or a fourth-degree black belt or any kind of mastery it's huge. There's this long space between finishing that one task and the next and just being taught how those small incremental steps that may seem like nothing, but you keep doing them every day for weeks, months, years. And what that can, the, what that can accumulate into if you give it the time. That's the, I think the most important lesson martial arts taught me towards success as a freelance writer. And so have you always been interested in martial arts and and I guess where did that passion come from because like you said it's not something that you can just do you know once a week or once a month you have to dedicate your time and put a lot of effort to it so what where does that come from man I was dragged kicking and screaming into it Uh, my first martial art was wrestling and I was entering middle school, and my dad, who was a championship wrestler in high school, um, I was his oldest son. I was wrestling whether or not I wanted to, and I really didn't want to. I really, really didn't want to. Uh, but I got in there, and I got the bug. And I wasn't even a good wrestler. I was junior varsity team all the way through. But then I got into college, and I certainly didn't have what it took to go into college wrestling. Those guys are insane. Uh, <sighs> 
but uh, after a semester, I missed it. And traditional martial arts was what was next. And I got into some Taekwondo, fencing, Kung Fu, got into kickboxing for a while, did that competitively for a bit, and then on to other things into you know more traditional martial arts and then the the journey that leads to black belts and such but yeah it's i didn't know how much i loved it until my dad made me do it hmm. so yeah um, how does i mean often you see writers as put into like that nerd category and then you have the jocks were you <laughs> kind of did you kind of straddle both sides uh growing up or were you I guess primarily, I guess in like the jock, for lack of better work, the jock category. And were they all your friends, or did you have some writing friends growing up as well? I was a huge nerd. Yeah, a uh, huge nerd. Uh, and there were some experiences I had on the wrestling team as a nerd that weren't particularly positive. But martial arts, traditional martial arts, or you know the the non wrestling, the non athletic martial. Athletics the wrong term, but you have competitive martial arts like MMA, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, wrestling, which are much more like the jock category. But most martial artists are uh, jock geek crossover. There's huge nerd presence in the martial arts. You know that the number of people I know who both are, have multiple degrees of black belt and still play Dungeons and Dragons, which includes me. Uh, there's a lot of us in martial arts. Nice. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I, in very many ways, culturally, I felt like I'd found my home when I ended up in this culture that was jock geek multi-class. That's yeah, interesting because I definitely like I always loved writing. I always wanted to know. I always knew I wanted to be a writer, but I, I also love sports, and so mm. I also I definitely had those two groups of friends, and they never really meshed growing up so it's yeah. very interesting to hear um yeah that there's actually a side that where they they can coexist i suppose and you can have <laughs> you can have both in the same friend circle yeah so did you all so i guess going back to the writing part um you know obviously super successful writer you've got you know you've written uh 20 ghost uh, uh i guess 20 books as a ghost writer um you know multiple books as like under your own name did was that always something you wanted to pursue as a kid absolutely although i didn't know it was able something that i could do one of my very earliest memories is sitting there in my living room i was probably four mm -hmm. uh with a pen and a piece of paper, thinking up stories in my mind and scribbling on the page, pretending I was writing the story down. I don't know where that came from or anything like that. Uh, a couple years later, I had these, I don't know if you can even get them anymore, but this was in the, the early 70s. And there were pieces of cardboard that were like a connect the dot puzzle, only instead of dots, they had holes. And then you could take a shoestring and connect the dots with the shoestring and kind of weave in and out. And I had a set of those of dinosaurs. So I would take them and put them on paper and then pencil through the dots and then do a connect the dot. And that way I can make a picture book with the dinosaurs in different positions. And I remember making, and again, this was before I was five, a story where a Tyrannosaurus bit the head off of a Triceratops and then had a tummy ache because he swallowed the head with the three horns. Uh, so this is something I've been interested in my whole life, but one of the huge failings of the American education system is it doesn't show you how you can make a living from a creative pursuit. 
and I got some couple of teachers because I was very interested in it, and I, I had a talent that said I should try being a novelist or a poet or something like that, but nobody ever told me about freelance writing and journalism and the ways that you can go be a professional writer without also being Stephen King. So I kind of drifted away from that and into martial arts as my profession well into my mid-30s, and then I had a career change into freelance writing at that point. But it's always been something I've been passionate about, always something I wanted to do. So what shifted when you you were firmly entrenched in the martial arts? And then, so yeah, how, why did you change? And because, I mean, it seems like it's probably, you know, not to you, but from the outside perspective, it's probably a pretty big shift from, um, yeah, martial arts to, to writing. It was. Uh, and the shift was, uh, I had kids. Mm. Martial arts, professional martial arts, running a karate studio, which I did. That's an evenings and weekend job. And as soon as my oldest kid got into school and wasn't around during the day and I was at work at night and on weekends, uh, I just couldn't do that. It didn't, it didn't connect with my definition of being a good father. And fortunately for me, I had been writing all of my own ad copy for all the time I was running the karate school. I had done a couple of ghostwriting projects for people who had, they wanted to write curriculum manuals, for example. And I, I had a column in my local newspaper and I had a couple of articles of Black Belt magazine and a couple of the industry rags, things like that. So I already had a portfolio and I was able to turn that into a full-time income in, in a year. Good, nice. So if, um, if somebody's listening to this and, and maybe they connect with, you know, the not being motivated or not being shown how to create a... Uh, a, I guess, an income for freelance writing, what would you say to somebody who's like, yes, you know, no one's actually shown me how to, um, to write full time and make a living from it? Oh, man. So what I'd say is start now. One of the nice things about freelance writing is that it's incremental. So you've got a full time job or you're on an unemployment because the world's ending or whatever <laughs> is going on. You can take one assignment for pay and then do that in that spare hour that you have. And you can do that this week or probably with the time lag it takes between applying for gigs. You can have one done by the end of the month and then add another and another and another and build that up. Or you can just dive in the deep end like I did and end up getting there out of pure desperation. Um, either of those work, but start now. If this is something you want, start today. And where should they start? Should they start networking? I guess it's kind of hard to network um, now, <laughs> but um, you know, what, what are the specific steps somebody can take to, to find those clients? So the first thing I would do is I'd look to your hobbies and I'd look to your job where whatever your hobby is, if it's knitting, you go to your knitting store, or if it's beadwork, you go to your bead store, or if you're a brewer, you go to your brewing supply shop. If you're into tabletop role-playing games, you go into the local gaming store, and you stand at the register, and you look to your right or to your left, and there's this little rack with a dozen magazines. Every single one of those magazines needs articles by somebody who knows the hobby and who can actually write, because if you read those things, the writing is terrible, because they they hire people first for their expertise, not for their skill with writing. So that when you get in there and you can write and you know the hobby, you become an instant favorite of those editors. And it will be easier to get your second assignment 
they will start recommending you out to other writers, sorry, other magazines. And that is one of the best places to start your career with getting those first professional hits from those magazines. And the same thing applies to your career where if you were in a career and you've been in there for a few years, you already know about the industry magazines, the trade magazines, the consumer magazines aiming towards your industry. And all of those also are typically written by experts in the subject, not people who are expert at writing. So when you come as both, that's an easy place to start getting momentum and start getting those first steps towards freelance writing. And that's the, that's the best advice I could give you. And so how do you, how would you pitch these, these magazines with, um, what is something that you would include um, if you're, if you're trying to, yeah, pitch a story to them? So that's a really long topic that people have written entire books about. In fact, I've recently written a book called Query Letter Survival Guide that does exactly that. And it's up on Amazon and I think it's still 99 cents. I was intending to raise the price when May started, but I forgot. So, <laughs> so it might still be 99 cents. And if not, it's going to be 2.99. But you want to send a professional level query letter. And if you don't want to buy the book, come harass me on Facebook and I'll send you the, the template I use for free because I love nerding out about this stuff. But before you even do that, the first thing you want to do is read the magazine. Get a sense for what kind of things are they carrying? What are they looking for? What is an idea that they've already published that the people seem excited about that you can bring a new angle to? My first glossy magazine credit was in Black Belt Magazine, and I reached out to them for an article about non-combat benefits of martial arts training, right? Because that magazine is full of things about how to do a perfect kick or how to defend yourself against a guy with a knife or an interview with uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme or something like that. But when you talk to people who've done martial arts for a long time, almost none of us have been in a fight for 15, 20 years. So why do we keep doing it? And one thing I like to joke about, because I'm a middle-aged man, lives in the suburbs, self-defense for me is cardio. Because it's not a mugger that's going to get me, it's a heart attack. Right? Uh, you, get, you ask anybody who's been doing martial arts for more than 20 years, what's the most important physical self-defense skill they ever learned? They're going to tell you how to fall down without getting hurt. Because we don't, we don't get in fights, but I've fallen down three times this year. <laughs> you know, and it just gets more, that happens more often as you get older. And so this article was about that, and it really resonated with the publishers in the magazine, and that's how I got in, by taking a slightly unique angle on the general topic that that magazine served. And so if you read the magazine, you will find those ideas. Another thing you can do is about 80% of magazines out there have a section that's called front of book, where you read the magazine and they've got big feature articles in the middle, right? the ones that have the name on the cover. But in the front, there's these littler pieces that are 150, 200 words, 500 words. There's little things. And that's called front of book. And it only they usually only pay 50 to $100 for those. But that's where they give authors their first chance. Because an editor is not going to take a chance on a 7,000-word article that costs the magazine $2,000 and is core to getting that magazine out on time with somebody they don't know. But if you say, hey, I'd like to write for this magazine, I have an idea for your front of book, and that's some, a smaller thing that only cost them a couple hundred bucks, and if you flake out on them or you turn in something that's terrible, they can have one of their staff members write it out real quick in an hour, they're much more likely to accept your query. So that's a, 
find out if the magazine that you're querying has front of book and have your first couple of ideas be like that. That's yeah, amazing advice. Really, I think that's really uh, helpful. Uh, I stole so, it from a lady who was presenting at Northern Colorado, um, I think six years ago. Well, at least you're honest about it, I guess. <laughs> I, I'm not a smart person. I just listen really carefully to people who are smart. That's my superpower. I learn from other people's mistakes. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's very important. What, so, what else have you learned from other people's mistakes? Oh, Lazi, so many things, right? I've been in this industry a long time. I've been fortunate to be hanging out with some really smart people. Uh, some of the big ones, for example, when I was 30, I decided I wanted to run my own karate studio. And in the organization that I came up in, this was a system, American Kempo Karate Academies, uh, based in Albuquerque, New Mexico, that at the time had more than 30 schools in, I think it was 11 states plus two provinces in Mexico. And the owner, Bill Packer, if you, you come to him and you tell him, hey, I think I'm gonna, I'd like to run a school, he hires you to be the office manager at the headquarters for six months. And so I got dropped into that job and I was taught so much about business systems, about how marketing works, about why marketing works, about treating this passion, this hobby as a business if you want to be successful. And all of that was absolutely vital to making writing work as a full-time living. You know, I was in that position when I, trans when I transitioned from, I had a mortgage, I had kids, I had, <laughs> this wasn't something I could treat as a hobby. And so translating those business systems from point A to point B really helped. As a freelance writer, you must treat it as a business if you want it to be something that supports you. And on that, on that topic, the importance of investment. If you're going to go out and be a freelance writer, you are running a business. There's no two ways about it. And if you have a business, you must invest in that business. Now, that investment can be money or it can be time. And preferably you'll do both. But I think most freelance writers in the beginning, they just invest their time. They put in the hours, they put in the work. And then as it starts to create income, you can start putting money into getting professional headshots is a really good first step. Or getting a consultation with a marketer or a publicity department or hiring somebody to do your website. And then on and on to the point where you're actually spending money on marketing for your writing services, for your books, for whatever it is. But those two things about systematizing the business aspect of your freelance writing and how important it is to invest in your business and in yourself are two of the biggest pieces that I've learned over the years from other folks who are way smarter than me. I'd like to delve a little bit into the systematization of, uh, of a freelance career because I think most writers are obviously creative people and they like to do things um, kind of willy-nilly, if you will. Um, and they're not good at the i guess the business side or the the systemized yeah. system creating those systems um so what systems do you think freelance writers need so the biggest systems they need is a way of tracking their time paying attention to our time how we're spending it uh, paying attention to whether you're making or losing money on assignments being systematic about 
how you query for work and how you complete work. One of the biggest mistakes people make in their freelance careers, and I certainly made it for many years, I'm still guilty of it to this day really, is you work on assignments when you have assignments. And then when you don't have assignments, you work on getting more assignments. And what that creates is this feast famine situation where when you don't have assignments, you're not making any money. And when you do have assignments, you're stressed because you've got a whole bunch of assignments all at once. Where if you break down your day so that you're both looking for work and doing work in the same time period, it evens things out and you've got a nice steady income flow and you're doing a little bit of marketing every once in a while. And when I say marketing in this case, I do include going out directly to get work, sending query letters and whatnot. That's one of the things that you can do to just systematize, set up your hours, plan your week, plan your day. That kind of systematization really helps you write at the scale that is necessary to make a full-time living as a freelance writer. And then on the back end, systematizing all the, all the little business things, you know, tracking your income so your taxes aren't a nightmare, keeping keeping an eye on the various business expenses and whether or not you're actually making a profit from this business as a freelance writer, uh, handling your communications where tr where you're tracking people who, for example, there might be an editor that you want in a magazine that's a little a little above your pay grade as it were. And you want to maybe warm that pot up by communicating with them on Twitter a couple of times, uh, finding out what conference they're going to next, and you know, a little bit of light sales stocking, as you were. as it were. Mm -hmm. And that works better if you pay attention to it. If you have a little spreadsheet that tells you when was the last time you talked to this person. And if it gets more than two weeks, you intentionally wander over to their Twitter and find a conversation to start. And little things like that. And it's hugely powerful. So you, yeah, I guess Excel, is there any other tools that you use um, to track, you know, like track, I guess, time, I guess, income, there's like, there's so much. So um, is it, if there's any tools that you would recommend to uh, writers to make their lives easier? I am the worst person in the world to ask that because um, I just use a spreadsheet. You know, yeah, cast back your mind to you know a few minutes ago when I mentioned running a brick and mortar business, right? A karate studio for ten years and being trained in that in the '90s and then in through the 2000s, before we had all these cool apps to track your time and before there was affordable software that wasn't enterprise level for systematizing business. So I already know how to use Excel to do these things, and I'm disinclined to learn something new. Uh, however, if you haven't already become a, an Excel jockey, there are tools out there, I've heard, that do all of these things much easier, much faster than Excel. <laughs> so uh, there are people who know these things. I'm just not one of them. Cool. Uh, like those ads that I've seen right now with Danny DeVito that have apparently apps that will, you know, you take a picture of your business receipt and it just kind of tracks it and categorizes it automatically for you. Mm -hmm. uh, that's an example that exists, but I haven't looked into it because I know I'm just tapping away on my Microsoft spreadsheet like I have for 30 <laughs> years. Um, anyway, yeah, those tools are out there, but honestly, if you know Excel, use Excel. It's there. It's easy. You can use Google, the Google Sheets for free. Yeah, there's, I mean... <laughs> Yeah, I guess uh, whatever works, right? That's that's yeah. the most important thing for sure. So mm -hmm. how do you think about marketing and what should freelance writers do to market themselves? So you need to redefine marketing. That's the first thing you have to do. 
And what I mean by that is we all have, when you say marketing, you say sales, most of us creative types, we think about that used car salesman guy. We think about those act now, supplies won't last, ads that are on when you stay up too late watching movies on TV back when ads were a part of our watching movies experience, <laughs> right? That's, that's what we think of when we think marketing. And it's dead wrong. Marketing is being such an enthusiastic, passionate nerd about something that you infect everybody else around you with your passion and your enthusiasm, and a few of them decide to become nerds about it too. Uh, the best example of sales and marketing that will resonate with this group was when was the last time you recommended a book to a friend? You sold the shit out of that book, right? There's a book I read a year and a half ago called The Three-Body Problem by Xixin Liu, which blew my damn mind. I recommended that book to so many people so often, my wife now forbids me from talking about that book because she's bored of hearing about it. I sold the shit out of that book. And the question I have for you, for your book, for your writing is, are you passionate enough about your book to be that, you know, to sell the shit out of it? And if you're not, I strongly recommend going back and writing a better book, right? Can be at least as passionate about your work as you are about the work of somebody you've never met, right? But that's, that's the most important thing that writers can do about marketing and sales. Just flip that switch from is this thing that used car salesmen do to it's sharing the things you're passionate about with the other people who might be passionate about it. I mean, when your friend who knew you well and knew your taste about books recommended a book and then you bought that book and read it, was that a positive experience for you or not? And it was. And that's what you want to do for other people. I was reading a book just yesterday, and I can't, I cannot remember the guy's name, which is disappointing because he deserves the credit for this. He refers to marketing in the 21st century on social media as being relentlessly helpful. And that's, that's marketing for us. It sounds like a Seth Godin quote. I don't know, but <laughs> yeah, that sounds like something that, he would say. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He referenced Seth Godin in the anecdote he was telling about it. And off the top of my head, I can't remember whether he also quoted Seth Godin as that or just gave Seth Godin as an example of that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, being relentlessly helpful. So should freelance writers, they, should they do any other marketing other than just being on social media? I think so. And it really depends on what kind of marketing you do or sorry, what kind of writing you do. If your freelance jam is just getting as many corporate blogging things in as possible, then your marketing should be social media approaches. It should be a lot of asking for references and referrals. It should be a lot of just asking for more work from your existing clients. It surprised me because I do a lot of coaching of freelance writers. How many of them finish an assignment with a major corporation or a major, major publisher and say, thank you so much, see you around, I guess. Instead of ending that email with, hey, what else have you got going on? Do you have any more need of a, of a proven freelancer? Yeah, but little things like that. Uh, you should make sure that your web presence, whether that's a dedicated author website, whether that's just a Facebook page for your business, wherever somebody can land when they're looking for you, you got to make sure that that is sharp and tight. Uh, getting out there on podcasts is very strong. Another thing that I really recommend if you're in that realm, if you're doing a lot of freelance writing for magazines, for websites, is going to industry conventions, not writing conventions, which you should also go to, but 
a convention in the industry where you do most of your writing. Because you're going to be the only writer in that room, and a lot of those people need some writing done. But that kind of that kind of stuff for if you do mostly freelance writing. If you're doing self-publishing, trying to market your books, that's a different ballgame, and it involves social media. It involves websites that like a book funnel, like a book bub that give free copies or reduced copies out to large audiences. Um, involves going on podcasts like this one. It involves going to your library and doing readings or my favorite calling local bars and having them host readings because they usually give you your beer for free when you do that. Uh, things like that. But yeah, you should, each kind of writing has its own kind of marketing plan and then you can go pursue that marketing plan with vigor and intelligence. So some, for somebody who has traveled both the uh, self-published route and the traditional route, what is the difference? And for, I guess, again, a writer who is starting out, which route would you recommend? Ooh, that's a, that's a tough question. And you need to understand that I've got a lot of self-published work out there and I am married to an agent. Now, when I get, start feeling too big for my britches, I just remind myself that I am married to a literary agent and currently unrepresented. <laughs> I can see some fights over the dinner table already. <laughs> no, it's it's fine. We actually had a we had a really interesting talk about that early on and decided kind of mutually that she could not represent me. Uh one thing is that I don't write directly in her genre and another thing is that there are some huge conflicts of interests there where even and this is a bit of an aside where even if she behaved absolutely correctly if, for example, she was owed a favor by a publisher and the smartest move and the most appropriate move was to spend that favor on me, all of her other clients would have other ideas about why that favor was spent. And so it's absolutely reasonable. But, you know, she also has agent, other agent friends. <laughs> so that's on me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I've been, I've done enough solid favors for people who are literary agents that I'm starting to take a person. I'm not actually, I know why it's, you know, the, the stuff I'm working on right now isn't traditional publish focused and it, it wouldn't work. But I do have traditional deals as well with some small publishers for my YA series. And I consider my traditional publishing work the publicity arm of the writing empire I am building. The big question you have to ask yourself when you're wondering traditional publishing versus self-publishing, there's actually two big questions. First one is, is your idea of success, your definition of success as a writer linked with the traditional publishing route? And if that's so, then you should chase that because only you get to define success for yourself and you should not settle for less than that. Now, if the answer to that is ambivalent or it's eh, not really, then you have to ask yourself if a traditional publishing deal will sell 10 times as many books as you can on your own because they're going to give you 10%, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so then that's the question you got to ask. And a lot of people find that the answer is no. Uh, that's especially true if you're doing nonfiction stuff because with nonfiction, they're going to ask you what size your platform is anyway. And if your platform is large enough to get the attention of a traditional publisher, it is probably large enough that you can make plenty of money selling them to them directly. Uh, with fiction, it's, a, it's far less cut and dried because fiction, one way I like to think about it is writing nonfiction is a solid blue collar job. You know, you're going to make 
if you really go at it, you can make six figures. You can make in the seventy to one hundred twenty thousand dollar range. It'll. It's not easy, but it's not harder than any other job. Fiction is a lottery ticket. You're going to make very little, or you might ring the cherries, and there's very little way to predict it. Um. So, from someone who, again, yeah, who writes across so many different genres. What, like, what do you personally, what's your favorite genre to work in? So I do a lot, I mentioned earlier that I play Dungeons and Dragons to this very day. I'm a man who's pushing 50, who still does that. That's how much of a nerd I am. About a third of my income now derives from working within that industry. And that is my favorite. It's my hobby. It's my passion. And I get to, I get to play while I work. And that's really fun. The, the pay scale is kind of low, but it's all right. I do some corporate gigs so that I can afford to keep doing the, the gaming stuff. So that, that's probably my favorite uh, work for hire. In terms of my own work, my favorite thing I'm working on right now are these uh, Max and Louise stories that I write with the help of my grandmother. They yes. are about stupid people and sex, drugs, and violence, often all happening at the same time. And they're hilarious, and they make my grandmother laugh. Uh, they don't sell much, but they're really fun. Um, is, this, is this show intended to be like PG, PG-13, or R? Whatever you want. All right, so for yeah. example, one of the most recent books in the series, and again, this is my grandmother and I working on them together. Um, it starts with the line, my buddy Cletus died as he lived, jacking off with a belt around his neck. <laughs> so that'll give you an idea of what kind of stuff we're working with here. I want to uh, meet your grandmother. <laughs> she sounds awesome. She is, she is absolutely the best. <laughs> She's in her late 90s, and she says sex when you take a picture of her because she likes sex more than she likes cheese. It makes her smile bigger. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, so you can find those. They're on Amazon under her name, Elizabeth F. Simons, the Farkas Foxtrots, and they're just – I really enjoy them because I enjoy my gran, and I enjoy being a horrible, horrible person. <laughs> can you talk a little bit – about so you, do you write for for games or like how does that how does that work so i do a lot of writing for tabletop role-playing games mm -hmm. and those that hobby has a large need for content where they they have rules that they write they have descriptions of imaginary worlds that they write and they have scenarios for play and the largest market is in those scenarios because that's what people spend the most money on and that's the easiest place to break into and uh, most of the work I've done has been for those scenarios followed by world books. And it's just, you get hired, you get shown the, the rules of the game, you get shown the world the game purportedly exists in, and then you get shown a piece that's missing and some guidelines as to how to fill it. And that, so does that uh, scenario, do they go on the website or, or are they a book or, or where does that, uh, where is it um, presented? All across the board. Some of them are, print publications some of them are ebook publications some of them are web content uh, it's rarer to get web content gigs because the profit margin in that industry is very very narrow so usually they have staffers do web content and then the writers go for the actual stuff they sell for money okay cool and so you also write in uh something called flash fiction can you tell me what that is and why you enjoy that genre as well. So flash fiction has, is very short stories. And you ask 100 people how short, you'll get 100 different answers. Uh, in the anthologies that I 
publish and edit and the magazine that I run with it, our definition is a thousand words or less. And so they're very bite-sized stories. And what I like about them is it's basically speed dating with authors where I can sit down for an hour and read 10 of those stories. And then I've got an idea for the voice and the, and the passion of 10 different authors. And then I can go find out what else they've written if I really love them. That's my favorite part about it. And then as a publisher, what I love about it is because I've been doing that for about five years now, publishing these anthologies, reading people's works, uh, communicating with them back and forth, is it's created this great community of writers that I get to be a part of. I get to meet more writers and talk writing with more people, which is really fun because I get to nerd out about that stuff with people who know a little bit about it. And that's, that's great. Cool. I want to shift gears a little bit because mm-hmm. you profess to being a a uh, serious traveler and really enjoyed traveling. Where are some of the, your favorite places to travel and w- how is that, if at all, has it impact your writing? That's a really great question. Uh, some of my favorite places in the world I've been, um, I love Malaysia. It's this kind of, you know, it's kind of backwater really in a lot of ways, but it's because of its history, it's been invaded a bunch of times and it's its own place now but what that what that has meant is it's got very diverse very um, intermingled cultures where you'll have very, very traditional muslim culture here and very hip chinese culture here and then the leftover europeans from the days of colonization over here and then new expats over here with their laptops and then in malaysia particularly there's a population that are ethnically Chinese, but have been there since before North America was discovered, but they still kind of remain separate. And so it's a very interesting country to be in because you are bumping into multiple distinct cultures at the same time, where, you know, America's a great melting pot, as they say, but Malaysia is more like a salad, Hmm. where there's chunks of very different things all put together. And it's, it's just very, very interesting. Siem Reap, which is the city in Cambodia that has accreted around Angkor Wat, is amazing. It's just really interesting and deeply full of culture. And beer is 50 cents each. (laughs) So so those have been some of my favorite places. Beijing was really interesting, of course, and uh, New Zealand is jaw droppingly beautiful. Uh, But in terms of how it's affected my writing, you know, it changes you as a person, especially going somewhere long term. Um, I lived in Japan for the better part of two years in my late 20s. And then in my early 40s, I took my sons to Malaysia to live for a year. Hmm. And living somewhere, spending more than like a two week vacation there, it just fundamentally changes how you perceive the world. Um, for a lot of reasons, some good, some bad, some depressing, some uplifting, but it fundamentally changes who you are. And that, of course, fundamentally changed whatever I do and what I do now is writing. Uh, one thing that I will say about freelance writing, one of the great things about freelance writing is I had already established my career as a freelancer when I went to Malaysia for a year. None of my clients minded and half of them didn't notice. So one of the great things about freelance writing is you have complete location independence. You can go do it from wherever you want, which is pretty cool. Yeah. So what, what was the decision process of moving to Malaysia? And yeah, basically, why did you decide that was the right time to do it? 
So that came from my, my first wife, and we've, we've been divorced a few years now. Uh, she and I met while we were both teaching English in Japan. Interestingly, we grew up 90 miles apart, and we met there. That's funny. But, <laughs> yeah, right? And she had actually lived in France for three years before that. She was a very international person. And we, even before we had kids, you know, travel was a serious uh, value in our relationship and in our lives. And we both, upon returning to America, really noticed how that experience of living abroad had changed us for the better, had made our lives better and richer. And we wanted our children to have that experience as early as possible. And then from there, it was just a matter of uh, figuring out the year that would work. Uh, the two kids from that marriage are 10 years apart. So figuring out when would be early enough that the oldest one would get solid benefit without screwing up his high school career, but the young, youngest would be old enough to remember, mm. right? And so we just found the year when uh, the youngest turned five and the oldest turned 15. And that was the year to do it. Cool. Is there any book uh, that you, I mean, I know you, you mentioned one already, but is there any book that you feel has particularly impacted your life? And, and it could be just, you know, it could be through your career. It could be through just personal experience. Um, but yeah, I mean, is there anything that, I guess, stands out? Any, any particular book? So the book that had the most impact in my writing career, and I'm answering this real quick because you sent me this question ahead of time very courteously <laughs> and very considerately so I could think about it. Um, but the book that in, impacted my writing the most was uh, Ray Bradbury's Zen in the Art of Writing. Mm. And the reason that it impacted my life so much was it caught me at just the right time, both in terms of my my ability to hear what was being written and the conditions in my life that allowed me to put them into to work where it inspired me to write a short story a week for a year. And most of them were terrible, <laughs> but that practice of I would write a draft on Monday and then I would revise the draft each day until I had a finished story on Friday. And that experience of doing that for a year and disciplining myself to do that for a year made my writing so much better. And the book itself is a good book, but honestly, at this point in the, at this point, good Lord, 40 years after it got published, 50, uh, there's nothing in it that you can't find elsewhere. But for me, it really just caught me at the right moment. Uh, one of my favorite quotes from that book that I will always cherish and is still very important advice to me is, he says to consider your friends. Do your friends support you and believe in you, or do they stunt your growth with ridicule and disbelief? If the latter, you don't have friends. Go find some. <laughs> Why did that uh, quote uh, stand out for you? I don't know exactly, but it, it really stuck in. And then it, I observed how people's friends treat each other and have tried to fill my life with people who will support and enrich me and who don't who don't mind kicking my ass when I need my ass kicked but there's a lot of people in our lives and I, I don't think anybody who hears this is gonna say nope nobody I know is like that <laughs> who feel like tearing somebody down makes them seem smarter than building them up and when they when they get in on you and kick your ass it's not because your ass needs kicking but because it's easier than kicking their own ass and growing as a human being and keeping those people at, a, at arm's distance is a really good way to live a certainly more pleasant life and more productive and 
more successful in my opinion. So I want to talk a little bit about discipline. You've mentioned it a couple times. I know it's one of those things that are traditionally thought of as like a martial arts practice, but is there anything that writers, I feel like writers, um, they always, this is something they always struggle with. So is there something that they can do to uh, help with that discipline um, and practice uh, basically to become better at it? So the most important thing about that is that discipline is not a talent. Discipline is not a character trait. Discipline is a habit. That discipline is, as my sensei, Mr. Packer, used to say, discipline is doing the right thing when nobody's watching. You know, discipline is writing that thousand words that you promised yourself you'd do that day, whether or not you want to, whether or not it's hard, whether or not you have writer's block, which isn't a thing, by the way. Uh, yeah, uh, one of my great favorite sayings about writer's block is I don't have a muse, I have a mortgage. <laughs> and you get that shit written. And you develop discipline by doing stuff you don't want to do. <laughs> and then you just, you fall into the habit and you do it, you, you're writing and it gets hard and you give up or you want to give up and you just, you tell yourself, okay, one more paragraph. And then the next time you say two more paragraphs and you build that muscle, if you will, of discipline, just like we kind of talked about at the beginning, one day at a time, one step at a time, one small increment at a time. And over the course of weeks, months, and years, you become very disciplined and very focused. And it's one thing that a lot of, uh, you know, quote unquote, creative types kind of recoil at in some ways, although I think that's a stereotype. Most of the people I know who come to writers' conferences and we talk, they, they buy into that. You know, they, they exercise discipline in their own lives just under different names, right? And then if it's really challenging to you, there are specific skills, specific programs, specific ways. You know, simple meditation is a very easy one to start doing. There are some hacks that I use. For example, if there's an article that's given me a lot of trouble, I resist the temptation to finish the sentence when I'm done writing for the day. And the reason for that is if I fin when, you, when you're having trouble writing something, when it's not coming, the worst thing you can do is sit down in front of the screen and not know what to write next. And, and we've all had that experience where we spend a half an hour just staring at the screen and nothing happens. But once we get that, those first three words, we're off and running and we're fine, right? If you quit Monday's writing mid-sentence, by Tuesday morning, you can't stand not to finish the sentence. It's been driving you crazy all night. <laughs> and then you're off and running. Little tricks like that that are, you know, some people would say that makes you one very disciplined, but all it really does is you cheat a little bit and your discipline comes later, and that's fine. Uh, the other thing that I've, I don't know if realize is the right thing, but it's, a, it's an angle that I've been taking on this with some of my clients, some of the people that I coach through this journey is thinking about your goals as a promise you've made to yourself. And then to treat that promise the way you would treat a promise to your spouse or your child. Because um, you're married, Joel. What would stop you from keeping a solemn promise you made your wife? Or nothing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like we're Unless talking comas. Sick. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> comas. comas yeah. Illness. Yeah. Death. You know, the four horsemen, men with guns. Mm -hmm. And then maybe they would stop you. Most most likely you would simply postpone it. 
that's the level that you that we treat that's the level of respect that we treat the word we give the people we love and i would encourage everybody listening to when thinking about those goals that will give them the writing life they want treat those goals as a promise you made yourself and hold them as sacred as the promises you make to other people you love love yourself enough to keep your word to yourself all right i think that's a great place to end it uh so Sounds jason good. where where can people find you you know, the easiest way is to track me down on Facebook. Um, it's facebook.com slash Jason W. Brick. Or just look for a Jason Brick, uh, the one that's a martial artist and a writer. I think I'm the only one on Facebook that's both of those. Uh, so find me that way. Uh, my website is writelikehell.com, and you can track me down like that. Uh, look for me on Amazon and, you know, toss a coin to your writer if you like. Or hit me up on Facebook. I give my books away for free all the time. So just hit me up and we'll find something that suits your fancy. Uh, I'm relentlessly nerdy about these things. So I'll talk to you about whatever you want to talk about for as long as you can stand me. <laughs> and um, one more plug for your, for your new uh, book as well. Uh, the uh, survival guide, the yeah. query letter survival guide came out last month. It's 40 answers to 20 questions about query letters which is I wrote it completely out of sloth because it, the question comes up a lot. And I got tired of typing the question over, the answer over and over again. So I went and wrote a book about it. Uh, and it deals with definitions, like what is a query letter? Where you ask people what a query letter is, you get a lot of very technical definitions about how it's, you know, it's uh, an elevator pitch for your book that you send or whatever. But really the core definition of it is, it's the cover letter for your application to a job as a professional writer, you know, and to treat each query as being a professional writer is the theme of the book. And it goes into the nuts and bolts and includes a uh, four paragraph template that I've been using very successfully for about eight years now and detailing how to, how to customize that for your own work and your own style. But I'm, I'm recently proud of it and folks have been giving us some pretty good, pretty good feedback. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being thank on the you, show, Joel. Jason. Thank you, Joel. Yeah. Take care. Take care. Thank you for listening to Publishing for Profit. Please like and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.